when I made that cartoon, I was simply trying to depict what it felt like to, to be a person having it forced upon you if you didn't want it, if you you knew in your heart you didn't want it. And what does that feel like to have all the power of the state arrayed against you in such a belligerent, hostile, all-powerful way? Because that's how people, most people experienced it like that. Those who didn't want to join in to the vaccination process. And um, I sensed uh, from political speech and from the people who were vocal on why it should happen as almost almost a kind of a sadistic enjoyment of seeing people so humiliated and bullied. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike. Last week, John and I had the honour and privilege of speaking with the one and only Michael Lunig. Michael Lunig is an Australian cartoonist, writer, painter, philosopher, and poet. He's, his commentary on political, cultural, and emotional life spans more than five decades and has often explored the idea of an innocent and sacred personal world. The fragile ecosystem of human nature and its relationship to the wider natural world is, is a related and recurrent theme in Michael's work. Uh, he regularly contributes cartoons to newspapers here in Australia, and in 1999, he was declared a national living treasure by the National Trust. We are honoured to have you uh, with us today, uh, Michael. Thank yeah, you. thank you, John. Now, if you are talking to us, uh, that's not usually a good sign. It means you've done something naughty. So uh, this feels like a rude question, uh, but have you been cancelled? Oh, yes, uh, often and comprehensively, and my. My history of cancellation goes back before cancelling was, you know, fashionable, I think. No, it goes with the job somewhat, although in recent times it has become more sort of dire and uh, I guess effective from the cancellor's point of view, yeah. Once it was... um, You work your way through it, it was a process, probably... Uh, within, you know, the, the debate in the newspapers and then people moved on. But it seems like a more indelible thing now. You're sort of stuck with it for a bit longer. We'd like to explore a few different topics with you today, but we'd like to get your thoughts on the recent COVID lockdowns in Australia and, and particularly in, in Melbourne. John and I were both in Melbourne for the duration of the lockdowns and, and we were frankly a little overwhelmed by the experience and it, it was confusing and alienating and, and sad and, and, and anger-inducing at times as well. Uh, we're interested in your experience of life during the COVID pandemic. Very much like what you've described your experience was, you know, all those words, sad and confusing, etc. But also there was, um, I didn't quite, I wasn't convinced that this was uh, an effective thing to do or it was the appropriate thing. Uh, There was a sense of, um, well, overreach and there was something else going on and I couldn't quite gather what that was and I, I read all I could and talked to all the people I could and, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm not a believer. And how do you force someone to be a believer? Uh, I'm willing to hear what the, the reasons were, but I'm not convinced. And I think it was a mistake in the way it was done, uh, as distinct from quarantining people, which would have been a, probably the more traditional way of, but to just uh, throw that, damper over the entire uh, society seems 
it was suspicious to me. I did feel very distressed on behalf of many other people uh, who were more grievously affected and, uh, you know, economically and all sorts of ways. And then a strange mood seemed to come over the culture and the society, a mood, and who can measure that? What data can measure or can record this mood swings in a society, the loss of spirit or whatever, however you want to phrase it, something else was happening to people as a consequence, which I think the people who planned it and, 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 and sort of uh, imposed it weren't aware of what they were doing to some degree. It was like a bungled military operation. Well, what, what, one thing that really struck me is there was very much a lack of empathy uh, for people, particularly those who who were uh, advocates of lockdown, they 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 were very unsympathetic to people who who were struggling through that period. I thought. Oh yes, I couldn't agree, and that's what was uh, distressing. I mean, I was kind of a bit aghast at that lack of empathy and the lack of compassionate imagination, and uh, which I think is vital for any healthy society. Uh, very helpful and very useful to understand each other, and under, it's, it should be a, a, a normal kind of thing. But yeah, that, there was such a willing, uh, such a refusal to understand, and there was a hostility in it. And then all the the name calling and the branding people as this and that, you know, conspiracy theorists, whatever. Um, uh, th- that was. It was was shocking, in a a sense, it was shocking because my memory went back to other times in uh, my my history in this this country and um, when things got dire. But there was something, this coldness to it and and this dispassionate, almost robotic thing and this trumpeting, this thing about science and um, as if... It was some kind of creed which was, you know, posturing as very evolved, but in fact was quite primal. And um, I, I found that upsetting and to see and to be lumped in with, uh, to be lumped in with, you know, I was a, um, a non-cooperator, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> it took me back to my times when I got my conscription notice in 1965, and the same kind of things were said then. If, if, because I resisted, I resisted in my heart and soul and mind because I'd studied the progress of the Vietnam War and as a young man, and I said, no, I'm not doing that. I, 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 and so one was called a coward. There was a coward, a traitor, all those kind of things, and really excluded, but not in the same way. It was a more of a passionate thing on the part of those who were forcing it. Uh, but now, as you say, it's some cold thing, and ordinary people if I might say that, just your average so-called ordinary Australians were suddenly behaving in ways I hadn't encountered before and as a group. And that, that I thought, what is happening to my culture? What is happening to my people? Also suddenly, uh, so, yeah, confusion and distress. And then a sense of massive of furthering alienation. I said, this is not my, this is not my land. This is not my culture.
Well, we, we wanted to, to, to wade into the controversy a little bit. Uh, in September 2021, you you drew a cartoon uh, that featured one of your classic uh, large-nosed figures standing in front of a green tank. Yes. Uh, and instead of the usual artillery, this tank is equipped with a huge syringe. Uh, and apologies for the, the crude explanation. Uh, in the top left corner of the image is a thumbnail version of the iconic Tank Man image from the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre in China. Uh, there are many ways to read an image, but it's clear that your comparison, uh, the comparison that you were drawing was around state power forcing its will on citizens in a very undemocratic way. And not everyone shared this reading, of course. No. Can, can you tell us about your reaction to this cartoon and, and, and what was the fallout like for you personally? Um, well, uh, cartoons are always to some extent ambiguous and there, there's a sort of a it's, it's not an ambiguity that's put there to confuse but it's it's got a double meaning which opens things up opens the mind up a little uh, so and so really what when i made that cartoon i was simply trying to depict i guess what it felt like to be have uh, to to be a person having it forced upon you if you didn't want it if you if you you just you knew in your heart you didn't want it and what does that feel like to have all the power of the state arrayed against you in such a belligerent hostile all powerful way because that's how people most people experienced it like that those who didn't want to join in to the vaccination process and um I sensed uh, from political speech and from the people who were vocal on why it should happen as almost almost a kind of a sadistic enjoyment of seeing people so humiliated and bullied. And then what happened to me was naturally um, the, car the cartoon was um, was censored by my editor um, and. I have been used to that somewhat in my uh, my life, and often it's on legal grounds. It's obscene, or it's um, uh, or there's a fear of obscenity, or perhaps being libelous, or something. And I can understand that, but it was clear something else was going on. There was uh, there was a consistency. I was getting these cartoons uh, censored again and again and again. And it's not much fun to put your all your feelings and your thought into a piece of work. It might end up as a simple drawing, but to do that is a lot of kind of effort and it's 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 risky. And then to just have it flicked aside, uh, if you get too much of that, it's it's hard to work. And, and of course, then the controversies in the letters pages, etc., and all the appalling interpretations and and the hostility and the insult, etc. All that, yeah, it, it comes raining down, and I've I'm used to that. It goes with the job somewhat, but oh, this was um, this was pretty heavy. And then you become, it's like a scandal goes out. He has done this terrible thing. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's a this, he's a that. And so it spreads. And then, and then, well, I'll give you an example. I'd made uh, uh, the, the Canberra Folk Festival wanted to use one of my paintings as the basis of a lot of their promotional work for the Canberra Folk Festival. 
They organised it all. They got a graphic designer to recraft these lovely advertisements and posters from it. It was good work. Suddenly I hear the board, whatever the board is, of the Canberra Folk Festival decided to cancel the whole thing just on the basis as my reputation is I'm I'm now a conspiracy theorist. I'm I'm an idiot or whatever, all the words that go with it. Really insulting and utterly disrespectful. So it catches on, you see. You get a bad name. Now, the cartoonists sort of should have sort of a bad name in a way. Uh, they should be known as a, an outsider, a constructive outsider and a bit cheeky and sometimes making some mistakes. But this is something else. And so uh, so that's an example. It spreads. And then another board of the comedy festival, for instance, hears that, I'm, you know, on the blacklist, so they better fall in line and put me on a blacklist too. So it spreads, you see, and uh, it's very destructive culturally. I think it's, it, it just suddenly it's Peyton Place. It's, it's the Harper Valley PTA. These old sort of pop songs talking about gossip and and bad names and etc. So, so it's a really awful squalid kind of stuff. And yes, I experienced a lot of that, and so. What can you do but shrug, um, you know, um, bathe your wounds in a glass of wine and talk to as many people as you can who, who are experiencing and understand. And so you keep this conversation going, reaching out, you know, your emails to people here, there and everywhere about this, what it feels like to be eliminated. And in my stage of life, I mean, I'm not a young man. I've had a lot of, <laughs> that's obvious. I mean, I've been making cartoons for 50 years. Um, to do that, you become um, a committed part of your own culture. You think you're part of a constructive kind of, I don't know, is it a dialogue? It's something that's, and you care for your culture. You care for your nation or your people as far as you can understand them. And, and then to be kind of trashed into the bin with you, off with you, you're not wanted. And as, as a, I, I think Sidney Nolan, the artist, said, um, is alleged to have said, Australia is, is not an easy country for an artist to grow old in. So I started to feel that. Hell, is that what I get? And not that you expect any particular thing, but you think you don't expect something just trashed so crudely. We'll we'll definitely come back to that uh, that point because we've got some questions about about that this phenomenon happening to other people as well. But perhaps we'll just stay with the cartoon just for one second. And I don't want to spend too much time on the autopsy because we've got we've got better things to talk about. But the specific reaction from your editor, uh, according to the Australian, quote, I have pulled multiple cartoons by Lunig almost entirely on the grounds that they expressed an anti-vaccination sentiment. We don't mind cartoonists challenging the readers. We encourage diversity of thought, but I had a concern with cartoons perceived as anti-vaccination, close quote. Now, does this accord with what you were told over the phone, if you don't mind me asking? Yes, uh, and um, because I recall thinking, as I think now, I I was never anti-vaccination. If people want to get vaccinated, many of my friends got vaccinated, that's up to them. No hard feelings, no... I wasn't anti-vaccination. I was doing what cartoonists always do, and that is to 
just simply question. Um, such a radical move by a government uh, to do this, to impose mandate, I think this is new to me, uh, to see people lose their jobs, um, it, it was extreme. And so my, I'm, I was always saying, um, look, this mandate, that's, that was my problem, the mandate. And the question of whether the vaccine's effective is another question, and I, you know, I, I don't care to, I have my, some views and questions, etc. but it was about the mandate. So I wasn't anti-vaccination. There certainly wasn't. A, a, my friends who've been vaccinated will testify to that. But... Um, I, I think something comes to mind I, I learned about recently, and that was the BBC uh, in London, where I had the BBC in London uh, created something called the Trusted News Initiative. I don't know whether you're aware of it, that. It was created by the Director General, John, um, oh, who is he, John uh, Davey, uh, or, no, sorry, Tim Davey, Tim Davey. He created this thing, the Trustful News Initiative, which went out to all kinds of parts of the mass media internationally, and it was like an agreement, a treaty, that there would be some consistency in blocking these kind of ideas, which were seen to be anti-vax, I suppose, to put it briefly. Um, this, this strikes me as an appalling thing, that there's some organised agreement. But my experience of being censored would seem to uh, verify that there was just a general understanding amongst editors everywhere, not just my editor. And I had a certain... I had conversation with my editor. I felt sympathy for my editor. Uh, we, we had intense conversations, nothing hostile, nothing too bad, but I felt... I felt she was in a in a corner somewhere from voices above. That was my intuition, and and then I hear of this trusted news initiative, and this is like you know Orwellian. Now the funny thing, the funny thing is, I was in the BBC in London two years ago. I did some little program there, and there's a gigantic statue of George Orwell at the entrance to the BBC. <laughs> really. <laughs> Stalinist kind of statue, and I thought, "Wow, that's something he would be horrified by." Oh, yes, but he would say, "Yes, of course, of course, they would do that." I think he'd be horrified. Yeah. He would expect <laughs> that. Um, yes. it's just what Big Brother did, you know? and the Minister for the Ministry for Truth, etc. So, look, it was complex, and um, it would, but it was very frustrating for me, and then. Um, because you try to have a talk to an editor, you try and talk it through, as I always had done in the past, but there just seemed to be an absolute, there was no real talk possible. It, there, there was talk that wasn't getting anywhere. So it's as if this was decided somewhere else. Well, we've seen we've seen that any opposition to COVID measures or even just questioning whether they're the right thing to do gets you a lot of heat, particularly online, but also with friends and family. There, there are people in my life... I. I I will never talk to again over yes. this pandemic. Yes. And I, I feel as though the cancellation of your work proves the point of the cartoon. It's proof of concept, don't you think? Yes, indeed. And the strange thing, I too have had this experience, friends, uh, where if 
I will speak to them again, but there's something missing there. There's something has disappeared, some trust and warmth. And and um, I think this must have been latent in our culture anyway, this ability to do this. Where does this come from? Just to cut people out on the basis of this. And the psychology of this whole phenomenon is very interesting and complex. And what is this fearfulness and uh, and I became sort of almost ashamed of my my Australian people. I think that it is this weakness. This was kind of being sooky about some some um, kind of so-called threat. And I'm I'm not making light because I'm not ex- an expert enough. But I thought, well, a bit of kind of courage in the face of this, and let's not turn on each other. Um, uh, let's be a bit spirited and courageous about this. And, you know, things like the old so-called Anzac tradition, and they all went out the window in a flash. And um, so it was a strange new description of the Australian character. And I think there's a shame still lingers with people who were compelled into this and conscripted into take this position and blackmailed and into it. Um, I think there's a deep unspoken shame and sorrow about having to do this, those who had to submit against a kind of a will. And I think there's a, something being carried in our culture, which is sorrow. And sometimes when people are ashamed, they turn on someone in order to, 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 to cover over this, their um, doubt and stuff, you know, and they have to become rather aggressive about doing this thing that they didn't, didn't want to do. So, uh, a lot of complex things floating around in there, and still are, and uh, and with 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 other consequences to other parts of life. I think which we can't quite read, we can't quite know what this has done to us, and um, it is still doing to us. Because probably like yourself, I had many conversations with intelligent people who could understand what I was saying. I could understand, and a lot of it was evolved in those conversations, and a lot of as philosophers did, as all sorts of people do, what's happening to us, and, you know, dig and delve into it. So I think it's been a shock for us all. And, and Michael, the question that some people that, that people aren't asking is if Michael Lunig, a living national treasure, a beloved and popular artist, can be cancelled, who's next? I mean, many of your critics seem dangerously certain that the guillotine will not fall for them. Yes, well, well I mean, this is known in warfare, isn't it? Yeah, where a man's comrade is shot through the head next to him, and so his response is, is to be incredibly relieved that it wasn't him, and and starts laughing or something. Uh, a survivor kind of guilt, and um, I don't know. You mean if it happens to me? Well, I grew. I went into cartooning as a young man, warned and aware that this is not going to be easy from time to time because of that upsetting of people taking offence, and that was always part of it. I mean, I've been in court for obscenity back in the days when you could be charged with obscenity. And, by the way, the cartoon would not be considered obscene now. It was just, it would be considered a bit ribald and sort of funny. So, um, but the letters pages over the years, and also um, 
uh, I've attracted a lot of hostility from colonists, which is quite extreme, and I'm not sure what the sin is, what my offence is. There's something in the nature of an artist, I guess. I mean, I didn't go into cartooning thinking I'm an artist. I thought I was just a cartoonist, but gradually I've realised I'm not a journalist. I'm more of an artist working with journalists, which is a difficult position. Uh, it's a different outlook. So um, so I have always expected a lot of hostility, um, snide, you know, undermining, and I, I think I, I think a lot of cartoonists know about that because I was always a little bit, I thought, what's the point of being a cartoonist if you're just going to say comfortable gags, you know, and I love nice comfortable gags and jokes. It's, that's, you've got to have that. But sometimes you get stirred up and... The outsider's view, if I can say an outsider, you are something of a professional outsider by birth, actually, I think. And um, there's value in that. There's great value in that voice always, I think, in society. The culture that doesn't have that voice is in trouble. I just believe in that voice. And that voice can be very intelligent. It can be very sensitive very perceptive, uh, prophetic quite often, uh, quite often. And and it's, it's really important to me. And so I watched that sort of thing being shut down. I've watched fellow cartoonists become more and more tippy-toe, don't go there, don't say that. Um, and that freedom which I experienced, say, in the 1960s, in that very formative time, that was the whole project, to, to sort of be outspoken, to say the forbidden thing. But I, I want to make the point to, to not to be entirely destructive, to shake the boat, you know, to rock the boat was considered a useful and, and valuable thing to do. In later life, I've, I think the boat is rocking so badly that... A good cartoonist would want to steady the boat somehow, <laughs> too. So, and so that's part of what I do now, I think. But this rock the boat idea, challenge ideas, have a really good, you know, um, a, a, a vigorous and respectful kind of uh, talk and debate, etc. It's, it's, it's good fun, apart from everything else. It's really lively and healthy, and. It's so boring now. It's so heavy-handed and dull-witted and boring. There are not many intelligent, interesting voices talking uh, uh, in favour of uh, the authoritarian kind of way. And those voices are pretty dreary. Uh, subsequently, you know, or consequently, things start to get dreary. I don't know how musical composers are going. Uh, I know how the art world is going in the sense that it's become authoritarian too. There are too many gatekeepers. There are too many people deciding which which art is is okay, which isn't, who shall be the chosen ones, etc. It's not an open ferment and as it as it was. So I was very spoiled in the 60s to, to witness that and to move in, in those circles a bit and meet some marvellous people who were... Uh, were very lively and 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 colourful and, and valuable too. You know, they just, they just weren't sort of professional eccentric sort of 
people. M- Michael, we have a, uh, a, a question on this, uh, actually, on art. So why don't we formalize it? Because one of the reasons we started this podcast uh, is that we're seeing a homogeneity in the art and the culture around us. And we wanted to talk about that. And it seems, as you say, that you're only allowed to make art in this country if it has kind of an, an activist uh, bent, if you will, or, or if you read from an approved script, so to speak. Now, you've mentioned it's uh, it's everything, books, movies, TV, music, uh, seems to be dominated by black and white morals, sort of a predictable social justice agenda, uh, more suited to a council meeting, I would have thought. And um, there's no space for, as you say, challenging, interesting, surreal, dangerous, you know, dare I say, larrikin. We, you know, we don't even have rock music anymore. The anti-authoritarian attitude behind it has been sort of, cancelled or pathologized so uh, do you think that um it's we are in kind of a dark age for the yes arts? i agree with everything you said there um and it, it troubles me uh it's well it troubles me because it's a sad thing to see the deadening of 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 culture or that part of culture to see the dishonesty of it to shut out to shut out so much art is not about shutting out it's about opening up and and um, and and you hear the music in it now. You hear the say the contemporary, say, you know, pop music, if you like to put it that way. It's pretty boring. It's pretty boring. And and I don't think I'm alone in saying that. Um, a lot of the art is very steered. It's steered by the critics, by the curators, by the gallery directors, etc steered along certain lines. You might say it's a version of political correctness, to use that term. It has to be activist art or it's going to be this or that. It's it's all caught up in the gender problem and it's sort of sidetracked down so many things that art is not. And, and, And I think we have a very limited understanding of art in this country now. It's got worse. I... and, and you mentioned the word larrikin. I think that does say something, that word, and a sort of attitude of open, cheeky kind of not kowtowing to the big shots. Um, art is very much a hierarchy now to those, the people who control it um, or imagine they control it. But, of course, I know that art goes on. Art is, is almost a spiritual. It's like almost a religious life. And I'm not talking about formal religion. I'm talking about the religion of the monks who went into the desert alone, you know, and, and that sort of thing. It's Taoist. It's it's all lovely things like that too. And it it. it it lives best with the individual, and um, who keep the individual to keep who keep who keeps it alive as a mystery too. Now, in this data-driven sort of age, the idea of mystery is kind of spooky or something. It, no, mystery is a fertile thing. It's it's important. Every good scientist would relish. The concept of mystery and acknowledge that there's far more there that we can ever understand. So, so this, so it, it, this kind of attitude isn't suited to modern organisations controlling everything. And there's such development of control and systems. And now the computer has a system. All this is easy to keep fantastic systems going via the computer. So suddenly, control seems to be the 
the order of the day and getting it right and making it, you know, correct and and, and being an activist to make a better world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know. But isn't isn't it interesting also how 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 it seems like we we don't ask any questions and some of your work deals with this. There's there's almost zero curiosity or inquiry into into transcendence, spirituality, the nature of our reality, or even looking to the stars or trying to get to the stars. Like those things, uh, it's all literally skin deep now. We only talk about gender and genitals and skin color, and it feels like all of that other cool stuff which which has inspired so many artists is is just like I feel like if I said all of those things to an artist today, like they'd just be bored. They'd be like, anyway, I don't care about anything. Exactly. Well. The secular, it's the secular thing gone mad. Uh, uh, this kind of aggressive secularism and, and being phobic about the word God, you know, or people have to feel the need to state whether they believe in God or don't believe in God. Like, you can leave that question open. That's the whole point. It, you don't, it's, it, it's, there's a mystery here. And can we just put a mystery on the table, and a really fertile mystery, and and enjoy that, and and I, so I think that's what the artist does. The, the, the really the devout artist has a sense of that, and um, and so the aversion about this this kind of uh, aggressive secularity, embarrassment about the word God, and and or the spirit, or these things, which all our ancestors used very enthusiastically and intelligently. I mean, Bach, Mozart. The planets, I was thinking as well, like the like yeah. like classical music yeah. or something. I mean, you know? where would they – they had no embarrassment about that. This was a devotion. And, um, and hence – and so also when I think of that, I think of Mozart, uh, the definition of genius. What is genius? Genius is love, love. And love, and so it, I think that's a, a lovely understanding of this, you know, word genius, and and of course to mention the word love, might you'll be called a lovey or something. I mean, I've been crucified many times in columns by various, uh, yeah, various columnists on on the, you know, as a, I'm called a lovey or something, just because I make the mistake of mentioning it, you know, mentioning love as a factor in here and. Uh, mysterious word it's a factor in human the psyche the whole meaning of life etc and so i've been held down many times on the on that sort of secular thing i once dared to bring out a little book well or to have in the newspaper sunday paper a little prayer i wrote a little prayer each sunday not because i'm a crazy you know uh sort of sectarian religious person but I was fascinated in what does this word prayer mean? What is there a place for that to explore that word in a newspaper? And um, so I started doing that. Well, you know, the sky comes down on your head. He's found God. Oh dear, etc. <laughs> so, so Mark, I've heard you say a couple of times that that is the artist's job to explore what is repressed, and it seems like some of this. Uh, 
some of this stuff uh, around spirituality is maybe being repressed at the moment. Do you think we're going to see a shift with artists exploring that again? Are you hopeful that that's going to I happen? think artists do it well. The problem is spirituality becomes an industry, doesn't it? And then it soon becomes full of frauds and shysters who are, you know, showing you the way. Um, it, it's dangerous territory because people who get hold of it turn it into a business or whatever they do with it or into a travesty. And um, so it's always a risky territory. But I, I think uh, the artist is in a sense, is a religious sensibility, although not many might admit to that, but I think beneath everything they're doing is a sense of, yes, the spiritual, the transcendent, there's something that is not this day-to-day measurable life which is um, so controlled, increasingly controlled and repressed. And, and you think, well, thank goodness, thank God for the artist who suggests that there is something beyond this life or apart from this life which can be had and can be held to and uh, to keep us sane, if, if I can even use that word anymore. Um, I, I think it's so essential. And, and, and this prosaic world of, of nuts and bolts and figures and data, all important, however, not enough. And, and so the artist says, there is more. You know, the child who looks at the stars, there is more. It's that innocent view of life. And I, I, I maintain that there is innocence in our most mature years, which I would call mature innocence. It's the capacity to look and uh, with open heart at each other, at ourselves, at the phenomenon of the world and nature, to look with that wonder and that is not a dreamy romantic thing that is a really intelligent thing to do and that's an an alive intelligence can do that and i i say that is mature innocence and and this this idea would be held down i I think in art uh in the in the art world as we see at the moment so um it's very knowing it's very snide in some ways very smart I have an example for you, Michael. So in the research for today's interview, I came across a, a review. Well, I don't know what I'd call it, a review, uh, a, an article on Mean Gin, uh, which I encourage you, don't read this article. It's a drive-by uh, it, shooting is what it is. It is a hit piece. It's, it's probably <laughs> the most spectacular hit piece I've ever seen on yourself. It's a, it's, it's the most loving, loving, lovingly hateful uh, piece of writing I've read in a while. Yes, that's well put, lovingly hateful, like the definition of perversity itself. And and you think, look, I've been a soft target, and I know that. I'm not trying to make cartoons which is are flawless and have armour around them. I want to do the opposite. I don't like being torn to shreds, but I think I'm – I say man enough to take it, and it gets me down. But I can see I, I've got a I've got a considerable always had a considerable interest in a psychoanalytic view of how people behave, and I think well, who's this man writing about me? What's his issue? What's this loathing and hatred? I must be really under his skin, and um, that doesn't give me much uh, pleasure to know that. But I, I just want to say uh, I have had a lot, quite a lot of that in my time. I might be what's called an expert <laughs> on this. In fact, there was one point I was 
so many hate mails. I was getting so many hate mails at one point. I think it was about the time of the Iraq War. I don't know. And um, uh, uh, they were piling up. And eventually I got to recognise the, the, the way they were addressed at the comments written on the back of the envelope. And they were mounting up and I ended up with a pile of hate mails. I was talking to someone from the Victorian State Library and I said, I was talking about this, and I said, do you have a hate mail collection in the library? <laughs> I said, no, but we'll have one. So <laughs> I thought I'll get these out of my life. And um, but, but you see, I, you mentioned sort of things like living national treasure and that, and um, that attracts so much hatred, that sort of thing. It's perceived as some sort of popularity or success. And don't underestimate envy in the arts in normal life. This is the thing nobody admits to. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that, Michael, because this article, the, the, I think we get an insight into a, a, this new kind of religion because the accusations, you're accused of, some of these things are true, uh, I think. Uh, it, it says it accuses you of being white and heterosexual uh, and a cis, a cis man. Um, uh, I think it, it says you're not shy of a coin, but but this this is a neuroses of the inner city woke elite laid bare, and mm. um, I feel like I you said it before. I got the feeling because because the other thing they, that this this guy said was, oh um oh you were that that Lunig was given a luxurious platform, not given to excluded groups for a long time, and I was like, oh wow, here it is. This person is essentially saying. Oh geez, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind, like you know, uh, my work reaching a lot of people and having yeah. a good time. Like you know, that's that's what I got out of it. I got it. So um, I I think you've you've positively identified what's underneath some of some of this the nastier oh, criticism. Oh, you can't underestimate that uh, envy, uh, jealousy, desire to hurt. The interesting thing is about these people, and I say these people because it adds up to a, a sort of a, a whole battalion of critics like this over the years. I can never get a conversation with any of them. I can never get us one-on-one, like we're talking to each other now. I can't get that. They run. They Or they don't lower themselves to want to sit and talk. And I would love to. And because, you know, a part of these uh, pieces against me always saying that I'm this, that I'm that, they don't know anything about me. They know not a thing about my life or what, uh, how I live. Or, you know, I keep hearing I'm a, a wealthy man. I'm not a wealthy man. I'm wealthy compared to it's that's all relative. I'm, I'm not a wealthy man. I work hard. I've got injuries from physical labour. Um, I, I don't live a lifestyle like that. And I've never aspired to that. And um, I really haven't. And and the, 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 the things are said about you and lies are said about you and to live in that, you know, with so many lies and and and, and I, we all need to know who we, we want to know who we really are. I'm, feel, I'm sure that's a universal human need to be known for who we are. So I have to be this kind of straw man or fake, I don't know what, people recreate you and that man who wrote that piece... That's just pathetic. He, he's he's clearly a troubled soul, and cranky as all hell. And 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 the world seems to be very cranky at the moment. There's a lot of bitterness and people snapping and snarling at each other's throats. I don't like this environment. Everyone wants is defined themselves by how they disagree with that one. 
in a most hostile way, the most bitter way. That's what an appalling sort of culture that is. Well, Michael, is it is it possible that there's a generational component to this? Because uh, we, we seem to live in an age in an in an age segregated society today. We, we don't seem to have any deep connection to our ancestral roots, no. and you know we have no village anymore, and we, we we don't seem to value the wisdom of our elders. Do you think that has anything to do with the rise in this in this wokeism? Oh yes, definitely. Uh, I do. I don't know how that turns around. Maybe a hundred years or something might turn it around. But I think there's uh, where you know Australians all let us rejoice for we were young and free or something. We're not. A lot of us are very old. And where are, where are the old voices? To, you know, to balance it out, where are they? That's an insult. Now, I'm an old misogynist, apparently, etc. All these terms, these terms, really lazy thinking. Lazy. And rich. Yeah, and rich and um, what is it? I'm, I'm... Heterosexual. That's, that's not on. That's not cricket. <laughs> am, why am I a misogynist? Uh, that's what I want to talk to someone who calls me a misogynist. Look, come look at my life, listen to my work, Whatever, am I a misogynist? What what did I do to deserve that? And um, and so it's you know, I don't know. Well, how do I survive it all? How do I live with it? Well, you bec- I become oh, you shrug and you get sad for your that this is in such this is this is in the ascendancy so much this kind of bitter, destroying, people destroying each other, assassinating each other, you know, saying these are the, the people who matter and these are the people who don't matter. I mean, what sort of appalling sort of sectarianism is this and what's driving it? What is it? What's this unhappiness? We've seen this, Michael, with some other people as well. So we've uh, deplatforming celebrated cultural figures, Jermaine Greer, uh, Barry Humphreys, for example. They've been sidelined for various uh, uh, sins, and it's all very pre- predictable. A comment is made. There's blowback from Twitter elites. Apologies are demanded. The apology, the, poly, the apology is either given or not given. The punishment is doled out anyway. Then the awards are renamed. The honours are cancelled. The columns are reassigned. So... Is one way to break this cycle as simple as simple as some of these organisations having some cojones and planting their feet and saying, we're not going to rename the Comedy Festival Award uh, because... Uh, on balance, um, Barry Humphreys, you know, just for example, it doesn't matter who it is, Barry Humphreys on balance uh, has contributed a, a lifetime's worth of, 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 of work and joy and, and, you know, great things. And on balance, you know, we're going to keep it. So anyway, that's it. Uh, end of announcement. Is that what some of these organisations could maybe try doing? Well, you, you don't understand why they capitulate, why they surrender to these shabby, shallow voices who just seem quite hysterical and who can yell the loudest. And I don't understand why these people just don't stand the ground saying, no, sorry, but we, we're not going to cancel Barry. Is a substantial person. He's given much to this culture. Jermaine has, etc. I don't understand why people give in to the, such shallow kind of loud voices. And- 
And Michael, you know, not 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 to get lost in, not to get lost in the detail, but Jermaine Greer was cancelled for something that now is becoming mainstream thought. So she was critical of of you know some of the gender stuff. And as of as of yesterday, um, international sports have have made this mainstream sport. So where's the apology for Jermaine? Do we get? Are we going to give? Are we going to call her up and say we're sorry? No, 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 no. We will never see that. And nor Barry, I think Jermaine and Barry, for instance, must be incredibly fed up and disappointed and they've written it off, the whole thing. And the idea is I think the best thing you can do if you're an artist is don't accept any awards. Don't because then they can't take them off you. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, felt, I saw Jermaine a year ago or a couple of years ago in Western Australia and she was she'd given a lovely talk at the Margaret Rivers, uh, Margaret River Writers Festival and she was talking about how sort of hated she is a bit. And I was talking to her later. I said, I said, Jermaine, you're loved. Do you know that? She said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and she said, no, I couldn't possibly. I said, no, you are. I said, so many people love what you do. And she, she's an inspiration to to me and my family. My mum is a baby boomer woman, and she changed my mum's life. Yeah. And, uh, and she's Jermaine's work is in my in my very bones. I was, uh, yes, I saw her at the time I met her at the time when she had she came here with that book. You know, the the female eunuch. She was formidable mm. <laughs> as a human being because I met her in the office. Of, and they, I've seen the documentary. She looked. She looked. She looked like serious business. Oh back yeah, then. yeah. But no, I've always thought. All the criticism of Jermaine, I thought, look, I'd rather live in a country that had Jermaine Greer than a country that didn't have, didn't produce Jermaine Greer. Uh, you know, what do we yes. want? Do we want them or we, do we not want them? Let's decide and embrace them and, and sort of honour them. There was, Jermaine was on a walking stick when I saw her. You know, that wasn't the young woman I met. She was a, a vulnerable, she was strong, but you get old, you get weak, you get vulnerable, and you see your society turn against you, etc. This is a horrible fate. And um, well, it goes with without saying, I think it's I think it's classical actually. I think it's probably uh, you know, the man who had to eat the hemlock. Um uh, you know, who was the philosopher? Sorry. So Socrates. Seneca, so maybe? Socrates, I'm talking about Socrates, <laughs> you know, the fellow who got put on the cross. It, that's part of the whole story too. That's part of the story. And and it's part of our cultural heritage, our psychological, our spiritual heritage, and knowledge that that's what happens to the truth speakers, not necessarily, but sometimes and often perhaps. And, uh, and that's not a reason to say, to romanticise being a truth speaker. And there are such people as truth speakers, not every time, but, you know, they they offer something. They offer a truth in this time when truth is not really welcome, if it doesn't fit the agenda. Hmm. So I think the culture is in a poor state and it's in a confused state and it's, it's as you said, about where's the apology to these people. Um, it mightn't help the person. It would help us it, it, to see... Barry apologised to him. Mine helped Barry, but it would help this nation, and that's what would matter, I think. You know, I think we should be, uh, you know, as a society, a little bit grateful to artists, I think, uh, 
because say you take uh, because something that's happening in, class- in classical music at the moment is uh, they're, they're trying to stop the performances of of dead white men and replace them with you know people of color composers of color and I think I think we should thank our lucky stars that people like Beethoven and Mozart and 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 their kind were, were actually born in the first place because they've given us the most amazing gift. Do you think Do you think we need a bit more gratitude? Yeah. Well, when I hear Beethoven, when I uh, for instance, I'm not thinking, oh, he's a man, he's a man. What is this gender obsession? If if I see a painting by Elizabeth Cummings, a beautiful Australian painter, uh, an, an old woman, uh, I don't think, oh, she's a woman. I mean, I do, of course, in a way, but it's just the painting. It's the painting that is so beautiful, that it's the overwhelming thing. And, and so with music, but... I, I listen to the ABC Classic FM, and that's going down this path of oh, you know, balancing the books to make up for all the sins, the alleged sins of male composers back then and now, so we have to have lots and lots of people. Yes, I understand the need for balance, but not just be careful with that. Be careful. Do it gently. Do it compassionately for all concerned. And I don't know, this thing between men and women which has developed, well, people have cultivated, it saddens me. It saddens me. And um, uh, so much misunderstanding, so much ignorance, so much, you know, ill will, and I hope we can get over that because until that comes right, uh, we're in trouble, I, I think. You seem to to have a profound connection and love of nature, and see human beings as intrinsically connected to nature. Uh, nature can be inspiring and and humbling and calming, but it can also be brutal and cruel. I, I feel as though the COVID pandemic has highlighted just how disconnected we've become from nature, how insulated we've become yes. from death. Uh, we seem to have put all aspects of life on the back burner to avoid death, uh, you know, but but we live in such amazing times, you know, uh, because of modern medicine, you can live to be 35 and never experience a death in the family. And, and, and I know people like this. Uh, if you were alive in Charles Dickens' time, five of your kids would have died before they reached two years old. Uh, do you think nature has any lessons for us in terms of dealing with our own mortality and, and coming to terms with unforeseen medical emergencies like like pandemics. Yes, I do. I do. Nature, yes, it's full of beauty and all that, but, boy, it can be tough and ruthless and cruel and trees can fall down on you and wombats can dig under your laundry, which is happening to me right now. <laughs> and, and <laughs> I was like, this is a very specific <laughs> example I'm hearing. <laughs> Yes, and, you know, and the, the snakes and the fo- and bushfires, bushfire season. Oh, what fun of nature that is, and, and etc. So yeah, it's tough, but you don't want to be squeamish about it. You've got to embrace that somewhat. And as 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 an old man, an old indigenous man, who I had the real pleasure and privilege of meeting, David Muljali, who was a man from the Kimberley region, said. He said, uh, when about his initiation time, he said, uh, we were told that each day faces you like a murderer. And, and, and uh, this was not like a dismal kind of thing to learn. It was to wake you up that life has death in it and it has danger and uh, folly and, and accidents and, and it was to just brighten you up. Each day feels like a murderer, and it does in a way. Uh, but 
So nature provides that, and this fear of death has become inordinate, and we have to face it, and we have to encounter it, and it's as if people just want to get old and get a caravan and go around Australia with a caravan or something, <laughs> and let them do that. It's as if death's not coming, and 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 it's not just death; it's infirmity and. And when people's knees go and they get sick and they have to struggle on, it's, you know, as um, as an old friend said to me once, she said, oh, Michael, old age is a massacre. And um, <laughs> so, so that's okay. It's okay. It brings you to life. I mean, death brings you to life or the prospect of it. And, and I, I've always been interested in it and, of course, we're all interested in death. And I, I, there was a time when I was young when I worked in the meatworks and I was killing killing cattle. That, and I didn't volunteer for that. I was a labourer and I was asked to do that. And I had to go and do that for, for an hour or two each day. And people said, well, that's a brutal thing. I said, well, we all ate meat back then. And I said, if that brutalises some, it, it sensitises others and it that work was working with life and death a lot for me, and you can't do that and without being deeply moved, and um, and you acquaint yourself with death, and in the death of animals, this sort of industrial death of animals. So, yeah, I I don't know what this what 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 is this desire to stay alive so long? What are we doing with our old age? What does this culture do with its old age? How does it treat its old people? Why do they? Why is this fear of death? My dad seemed to spend a lot more time on Facebook, mainly just like arguing, like doing big screeds on Facebook. That's what my old he, man. That's did. what he did. Yes, he's he passed on, unfortunately. But but when he 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 just he filled his his old age with um, yeah, just sort of complaining <laughs> on Facebook. Yes, mainly. Yes, uh, I, I I don't know. It's a strange thing. As a as a nurse friend once said to me, she had just been on come off her shift at the local hospital, and she was making a cup of tea and crying in her kitchen. I said, "What's the matter, Julie?" And she said, "Oh, old Mister Thompson died today." And I said, "Oh, I'm sorry to hear that." And she said, "No, no, he died the good way." And then she said, "There are only two ways to die." She left it at that. And um, and I think yes, how are you going to go? How do you grow old? How do you live life, basically? And um, so yeah, I think we've got a, bl- a block about it here, and this craziness to not even get the flu, and and no one wants it, but you know things turn up, you get hurt, so what? Now, Michael, there's a quote that I love, and it comes from Lord Sumption, and he said that there's more to life than the avoidance of death, which is a quote I, I say since since the pandemic. I think I say that quote That's every week quote. to someone. Yeah. It means so much, doesn't it? It, it? it takes you forward. Yeah, it's great. Michael, do you have any advice for a creative person listening to this? Perhaps they're feeling it's simply too hard to break in or to keep going in the face of these forces that are pitted against them. Uh, do you have any 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 tools to arm them with, perhaps, to face another day? Well, um, I don't have anything in my back pocket, so to speak. But I would say, well, look, look at the history of art or creativity or or the the prophets or whoever the poets. Um, 
look at Van Gogh. It was a struggle, you know. A lot of them are not known in their own lifetime or or too late. It's it's part of the deal. I think when artists become too much like celebrities, it's not real good for art. Um, perhaps this idea of celebrity now, attractiveness and, and uh, being celebrated and award-winning and all this, that's not the path of art. I don't think, and it's not, it doesn't mean it has to be suffering, but it's a deeply personal thing and it's a loving thing, I think. I think it's an act of love and it's, I think it is. Otherwise, how do you create and and um, why would you? And to understand the creative process, that term that flies around, it's not an upward ascent to the clouds and divine beauty or something, it's often regress- regressive. It's often getting lost and getting being in anguish about life and conscientious about life. And it can be lonely and, well, it usually is to someone. And this isn't a romance. This is just a reality. I mean, all lives are like this too, They're not just the artist's life, but there is trouble. And, and to create is... Is hard. Is it, it, it can be very primal too, and getting lost and doubting self, and it's not going on stage, looking attractive. Well, well as the great Red Simons always used to say, just, just keep, keep going. going. Just keep going. We're so thrilled that we've had you on the show today and we were able to chat to you about our troubling times. Um, we, we, we have a final question we like to ask our guests and, and we like to know what, what they're reading. So what, what what books are you reading at the moment? Oh, I've just been reading something which I, I don't think I'm going to go on with, actually. Um, it's just a biography of Philip Larkin, the poet, the English poet, um, and I've read a really good biography of him by Andrew Motion, which I like so much, and this one. One's not a patch on it, so I think oh no. So I'm between books, and they're all hovering around on a bedside table. And <laughs> I'm between books. But, but <laughs> I, I, I'm not a, the, the greatest reader. I mean, I'm not always reading. I wish I wish I would do more of that, and because I love I love a good book. Who doesn't? Yeah. But not a good answer to your question. A man's reading something he's just giving. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. It, the question, the question is as it is. Uh, so everyone, stay away from that second Philip Larkin book. I say. <laughs> But, uh, uh, Michael, I just would like to say thank you for your work. And, I, and I'm going to do what no one else has done. I'm going to say I'm sorry for what's happened uh, to you. And I know you, you, you don't, uh, you're going to get up tomorrow and, and get on with it. But uh, I just think that I'd rather live in a country with a Michael Looning in it. So no, thank you very thank, much. Thank you, John. Yeah. Look, I, I just look on what's happened and I'm saying, well, that's just in my story. That's my life. Um, it, it'll teach me a heck of a lot. And it's like St. Francis walking along in the rain and cold, hungry, and he looks up to heaven and says, thank you for giving me this, God. It's like that. You know, you, you can you know that it's all going to be good for you if you just keep going, as uh, Red said, and if you just, you know, go home and have a tree. Good call. Excellent. Well, we, we we know you have quite a devoted following on Instagram. Uh, we will we will post a link to your Instagram in our show notes yeah. and also your website as well, uh, so people could follow you there. Oh, thank you so much. 
I'm very heartened by this conversation. Really nice to meet you like this now. Um, it, it's good for me, honestly. And um, it, I've been thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm, um, I'm reassured that a lot of things are going to keep going and keep working. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.